I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. All right, and welcome back to the Appendix and Book Club. This is episode 32 on Philip Jose Farmer's The Gates of Creation. I'm Jeff, and as always, I am joined by the degenerate Lord Hoy. Howdy, howdy. Just looking to slip a knife into somebody's back. <laughs> and this week, we are honored to have pulp author and Paizo editor Christopher Paul Carey with us. Uh, hello, Chris. Hello. Hi, Chris. So normally we ask people how they got into gaming and how they found themselves in the Appendix N, but I instead want to kind of use your own credits as a way of framing this. So first off, you're a pulp author. You've written authorized sequels to the novels of Edgar Rice Burroughs and Philip Jose Farmer, who, as we both know, are Appendix N authors. I'm curious, how did you get into those particular authors and the Appendix N world and get to a place where you're writing authorized novels within those universes? <laughs> it's a question I often ask myself how I got here. Um, uh, I uh, <laughs> was a big fan of Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, basically since I was 12 years old. I read him actually a little bit earlier. I saw the movie Adder's Core when it was in the theaters with Doug McClure, and I, my parents bought me the the uh, the uh, movie edition, the Ace Books movie edition of At the Earth's Core. But I was a little young at the time, and so I never I didn't finish the book. So it wasn't until I was about 12 that I uh, I read I found a Princess of Mars. Uh, my uncle was into Burroughs very much so and introduced me. And so I picked up that book and it it was all over after that point. I, I, that's when I knew I wanted to be a writer. Um, I just devoured Burroughs. I like, over the next three years tracked down every single Burroughs book I could find um, and read just about all of them except for you know a couple hard to find ones uh, and. Uh, yeah, and 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 I've discovered Farmer by way of Burroughs because Farmer had written certain uh, a few different uh, books that kind of intersected with Burroughs' worlds. He wrote a biography of Tarzan called Tarzan Alive, uh, as if Tarzan were a real life person, uh, and he also wrote uh, his uh, Ancient Opar series. So, which at that time was only two books, um, hot on of ancient Opar and flight to Opar, which were based on a lost city from uh, the Tarzan books by Edgar Rice Burroughs. But, but, but Farmer wrote the ancient history of it 12,000 years before. Um, yeah. So That's cool. um, a very Edgar Rice Burroughs-esque uh, adventure series. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's rather fateful that that was really one of the first things I encountered uh, by him. The very first book I read by Farmer was The Maker of Universes, the first World of Tears uh, books. But uh, so over the years, that, that was just a huge influence on my life. Uh, I, I, in the 90s, I wrote a series of fan articles and fanzines about Farmer. And uh, in the course of that, I sent one of them to Farmer and uh, was kind of blown away that I got a response back to it. And he really enjoyed the article as kind of a a strange take on, on, I kind of tried to do what he did to other authors. Uh, he, cool. uh, you know, he treated them as sort of real stories and, and tried to figure out the, the hidden backstories behind like Edgar Rice Burroughs, Doc Savage, all, all these different pulp, uh, pulp authors works. Um, 
And so I kind of turned the tables on him and did it back to him. And I think he really enjoyed that. Uh, and uh, eventually I came to, to edit. Uh, I got to know the guy who ran his uh, website, um, Mike Croteau. And he started up a fanzine that was a, sort of a semi-pro fanzine because Phil was getting paid for it called Farmer File. And, and in it, we published rare, uh, actually just stuff that we pulled out of his filing cabinet that uh, had never been published before. Um, and so I was brought on as an editor of that. That's how I got to know Phil. So I, I had gone out there. Um, I actually had gone out there beforehand and met him just on my own. He was doing an event in Peoria it is it's the public library there. And he knew me from the articles I had written about him. And later I learned that he said that I was one of his favorite, you know, writers to, to examine his work. So that was oh, cool. Pretty amazing. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so in the course of, this is kind of how it all began. Uh, in the course of, uh, editing farmer file, uh, uh, Mike would go through, uh, he would, he had permission to go through Phil's filing cabinets and, he found in it an outline to the th- and partial manuscript to the third ancient Opar book. Nice. Uh, and he he sent me this email of this list of things that he had found in the files, and one one of them was that. And and he's like, I don't know what to do with this. Maybe we can sell photocopies for Phil on <laughs> on, on the website and make him a little extra money. But you're but, like, I you know, know what to do I'm with like, it. <laughs> I, it. Exactly. Like hold on, there, you know, I you know, and with trembling fingers you know, typed back a reply and asked him to send it to me. And he actually snail mailed at me a, a copy of it. And, and I was just blown away when I, when I read the outline of the, you know, this epic conclusion basically to the, to the ancient Opar series. And so I wrote a, a you know, kind of gutsy <laughs> thing to do, but I wrote a, I wrote a, a pitch to him on how I would complete it. And we had very similar backgrounds. We both loved Edgar Rice Burroughs, H. Ryder Haggard, which also comes into play in that series. And um, also, had, I have my bachelor's degree in anthropology. Phil was very much into, he was a Renaissance guy, he, but he loved anthropology in particular. So we had a lot of the same influences. And so I, I told him how I would do it. Um, and I think he kind of trusted me because he had seen how I had examined his, his books uh, in these fan articles I had written. Uh, and, you know, much to my surprise, he said, okay forward it is uh, you can you can uh, you can write this and i was going to grad school at the time for writing i had gone back to school to get my master's degree in uh, uh, writing popular fiction and uh, so i i actually couldn't begin it right away because i was writing my thesis novel at the time and he he actually was he and his wife betty very nice lady uh, were uh, very encouraging for me to to finish my degree before i would actually start writing the book so in 2000 and Seven, I earnestly started writing the book uh, and finished it in early 2008, if I recall. Uh, so uh, he passed away uh, in 2009 before the book was published, but he did get to read the book, or rather his wife, Betty, read it to him. He was you know, kind of in poor health at the time. But, uh, but from everything he told me, he, he lit up uh, at hearing uh, you know, the adventures of this, this character, Kwasin. The, this, the book ended up being called The Song of Kwasin. It's kind of a barbarian character, uh, uh, kind of a, an anti-hero, really. Yeah, so that book came out in 2012 from Subterranean Press. And I'll quickly say, if anybody's listening to this and they want to check it out, Kwasin is K-W-A-S-I-N, if you're trying to Google this to find out more information. So that came out in an omnibus of the three, uh, the three Opar books, you know, uh, which was great just to have, you know, the book that I had 
had completed uh, with Phil there in with the original books. It was just like the highlight of my writing career, really, you know. Sure. So uh, down the line, uh, because of I, down the line, I, I continued his series and I started uh, writing. Uh, I wrote a book called Exiles of Co, which was sort of a prequel to Farmer's series. And then I continued his main series uh, in Hot on King of Opar and Blood of Ancient Opar. And uh, because the those two had Opar in the title, um, my publisher had to get permission. Uh, they wanted to make sure it was everything was okay with Egg Rays Burroughs Incorporated. So they made contact with them and, and uh, ERB Inc. very graciously were like, yeah, we're fine with that as long as you don't violate any of our trademarks like name Tarzan or anything in it or... So, th- so I was already on their radar and I happened to go to a Burroughs convention and Grace Burroughs Incorporated was there and I spoke to their president and that's how it came that I ended up writing Swords Against the Moon Men and Grace Burroughs. So it-, it all kind of one thing led to the other. So, And how does this parallel your gaming career and what was going on there? So, so it all ties in together. Uh, so I, I come from a non-gaming background. Uh, I have, like when I was a kid, my brother and I in the late 70s, played around with the red box a little bit, but that was about the extent of my, my contact with D and D. Um, after I got my degree, I was looking for a job and I happened to see that Paizo was looking for a copy editor. So I applied to the position. And then, uh, shortly after that, I, I noticed that, uh, Eric Mona, the publisher of Paizo was going to be, this is in 2008, uh, was going to be at, um, NorwestCon science fiction, local science fiction convention. So, I went there and uh, attended his panel on GMing that he was on. And afterwards, uh, at this time, the, uh, the Song of Kwasin had not yet been sold. Sold. The agent was still looking for publishers. I was still kind of on the eye for potential publishers. So I had seen that Paizo was publishing their Planet Stories line of pulp fiction reprints. Uh, and so I approached Eric after the the panel that he was on uh, and was like, would you be interested? Poss-? And it's like, are you the, the publisher of Planet Stories? And he, that was his baby. So he kind of lit up at that. Um, and I was like, would you be interested in publishing a, you know, a previously unpublished Philip is a farmer novel that I co- co-wrote with him. And he was like, well, yes, I would be interested in that. So we went out in the hall and talked for about, I don't know, half hour or so about the pulps. Eric and I uh, both are big fans of pulp pulp magazines and pulp literature. And uh, uh, so we hit it off there. Uh, and at the end of that, I pulled out a book I had edited because I had, uh, in the meantime, I had edited some books on books by Phil, some collections by Phil Farmer for Subterranean Press. And I handed him this nice hardcover deluxe edition of this book. And I'm like, oh, by the way, I applied for your copy editor position. <laughs> so that got me on his radar. And uh, I got called in shortly thereafter for an interview, took an editing test, and I ended up working at Paizo. Cool. That's awesome. Did, did you start gaming again at that point or or still not yes, really? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I got in the big league right away with uh, James Jacobs's Shadows Under Sandpoint campaign, which I think I was in for about two years i'm assuming that's pathfinder what that was a pathfinder game yes and it uh had you know jason bullman was in it uh you know james jacobs eric mona um later sean sean uh, Sean reynolds was in it and all sorts of big names in the in the industry sure so i got thrown in thrown into the to the deep end of the pool right away (laughs) that's awesome now one thing that i haven't heard yet is the words appendix n when did you become aware of that concept 
It was actually when I was editing uh, the core rulebook for Pathfinder, because we have a section in there that is kind of a, a, a tribute to Appendix N with uh, influences on on uh, on Pathfinder. Uh, and so that's when I, I, I became aware of that actual concept. Very so, cool. Had you read a lot of the authors already in, in the course of I, your youth in reading pulps and stuff like that? Or? I had, yes, yeah. So yeah, the, coming into the world of Pathfinder uh, in the campaign setting was very familiar to me. So many tropes. All right. Well, very cool. So this week we are discussing Philip Jose Farmer's The Gates of Creation. And I have the 1966 first edition Ace paperback. And I believe that's also one of the copies that yes. you've got, yep. Chris. Is that correct? It's got a Gray Morrow cover on it. And it's yeah. Yes, it does. And it is such a wacky, wild cover. I love it. It, it. It's very Guardians of the Galaxy meets like old school comics with like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's some pretty wacky stuff. Which is apropos because Gray Morrow actually was a very well-known comic book artist later on. So That's very cool. Hoy, which version are you reading? I've got the uh, usual Beefcake Boris cover. It's a 1981 <laughs> uh, printing. Um and uh, I'm not even such a fan of Boris, but I recall seeing these covers when I was a kid. So I decided to fill out my collection with the Boris covers. So Yeah, and Chris has that one as well. Yep, there it is. And, so Chris, um, do you have like every every version um, of all of these books? Is that uh, is that I, something? Is, are you a collector I of that? I am a collector, yeah. I do have quite a few different editions. I also have the Fantasia Press edition, which came out in, let's see, what year? 19... Oh, it doesn't have a date in it. Uh, but anyway, it came out in uh, probably the early 80s and uh it's a kind of a deluxe hardback edition and phil wrote uh new uh new introductions for each of the world of tears novels and then uh, also interestingly he uh he re-edited them because ace books did some shoddy editing um mm. <laughs> and they also like they changed some of his his you know his words and things like that so he uh he went through and re-edited them and put them out and there's actually the ebook edition that's out right now um, I believe it's, op- I think it's open road media that puts, puts those out. Um, uh, I actually w- uh, was in contact with, um, the editor on that and, uh, got her to use the, uh, farmer's preferred text. So very, oh, that's really cool. So very easy to get. Yeah. If you want to get these books, uh, you can just get the Right. It's three volume and four volume. In fact, that, that's what I actually was reading for today's, uh, uh to finish off the book cool. this morning. So. Very cool. So before we move on, I'm going to go ahead and read the back of the 1966 Ace paperback. Wolf Jadawan, demigod in Earthman's guise and lord of the planet of many levels, opened his eyes to see the symbol of the master lord, Urizen, floating below the ceiling. The summons of the cruelest of the universe makers was direct and urgent. Jadawan's beautiful wife had been abducted and held captive by the satanic Urizen. In this uniquely amazing adventure, contrived by Urizen, Jadwin was required to enter the many-leveled universe that had been purposely constructed for his torment and possible destruction. Only through crossing the gates of creation could Jadwin redeem his bride as he ventured through world after brutal world in an attempt to outfox the Master Lord's diabolically booby-trapped planets. Very fun. So before we get into chatting about that, we're going to quickly look at our Hygaxian word of the day. Excrescence. Excrescence. And I found the word excrescence used twice, once on page 108, where it says, 
The topography was flat except for a few steep hills, so rough and dark that they looked more like excrescences than mounds of dirt. And an excrescence is a distinct outgrowth on a human or animal body or on a plant, especially one that is the result of a disease or abnormality. And again, the word is featured on page 120. This, like the first they had passed, seemed to be an excrescence, a huge wart on the skin. So this is kind of when they're walking around this planet that seems to have skin for ground. Guys, moving on into the library, I'm curious. I guess let's start with you, Chris. How do you feel about this book in general as a part of the overall series? And what was it like revisiting it? It is. Uh, so this is the second book in the series. The first book being the, the Maker Universes. Uh, it continues the story of Jadowin, uh, who is uh, a, a lord, uh, this race of immortals. Uh, who created a series of pocket universes, and uh, he he actually was stuck on Earth for a number of years and had lost his memory in the first book. And so, the first book is the story of him being thrown back into the w- world of uh, this world of tears, which is a particular pocket universe, uh, and relearning who he was and his background. Um, and uh, so by, by the time of the gates of creation, he knows who he was, that he was this immortal Lord who's been around for thousands of years. These just to kind of set up the series for people who haven't read it. Um, it it's, it's, it's about all these different immortals who are, are interrelated. Uh, they're members of the same family and they're trying to uh, kill each other. Basically uh, <laughs> it's very similar to uh Roger Zelazny's Chronicles of Amber, uh, which actually uh, was inspired by Farmer's World of Tears series. So there's lots of uh, backstabbing and, uh, and and things like that. And this one is in particular uh, one of the most. Uh, <laughs> it has it has that as as its chief feature, really, because uh, you have uh, uh, Jadowin, who's also known as Wolf. That was his Robert Wolf was his Earth name. Uh, he, he gets tricked as the back cover, um, tells you he gets, he gets, uh, basically taken from, he has to leave his world cause his, his, uh, his wife, uh, Chryseis gets, uh, gets abducted, um, by, by Urizen and he, uh, then gets, uh, finds himself on this, this world, uh, where he's, where all of his siblings are. So they've all been sent there also by Urizen. Um, and so while they all want to kill Urizen and, and escape this planet that they're on, I mean, this, this uh, pocket universe that they're in, they also are all trying to kill each other. <laughs> so mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and that is essentially the, the story. And, and, and there's uh, a lot of, uh, it's called the gates of creation. So there are a lot of, there, these pocket universes are connected by gates. Uh, and there are all sorts of different gates. And uh, uh, and they are booby trapped, like the back cover copy says. Um, and uh, it's a, a big intersection, big influence, I think, on D and D that we can get into in more detail later. But uh, uh, of course, so th- that's the basic setup of it. Uh, so you have all these people trying to kill each other while they're at the same time trying to uh, you know escape these these various pocket universes. Because one thing I had experienced when I read um, Pellucidar, the second in the Pellucidar series, it really, to me, didn't seem anywhere near as strong as the first. How do you feel this is as a follow-up to the first of the Maker of Universes series? So I I really liked the Maker of Universes. Uh, It's it's 
it's probably up there in my top five farmer books. Um, uh, so I actually, this is probably my least favorite of the books, probably because Kikaha, the character Kikaha, who is a, a very compelling character, uh, is not in it. Mm-hmm. Um, Kikaha is also was a was an was an Earth man who was drawn into the to the uh, world of tears um, during war. I think at the end of World War II, and um, he uh, Kikaha means the trickster. So he has a Native American background. Uh, he ends up on one of the uh, the levels of the World of Tears. That's the Amerindian level, um, and uh, he's just such a compelling character. Uh, so he, the fact that he was not in the Gates of Creation made it less interesting for me. That's fair. Uh, and it, yeah, the, and basically all the books after Gates of Creation switch to Kikaha being the the hero of the series oh interesting because hoy had mentioned yeah, before yeah. that he takes on more of a role but i didn't realize he becomes the the main character hoy what did you think of this particular book i generally would go with chris's take i i found that there was definitely less humor in the absence of kikaha although there's some from you know theo Tormund being so pathetic which is one of the brothers who's been turned into this kind of giant tadpole being vala the 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 sister is quite interesting i think she's a very uh there's often sort of a ambiguous dark female figure in farmer's books as i recall i mean i don't I haven't read them for a long time but i remember um you know podarge is pretty sort of a anti-hero character um i recall some in the um some of his um what was his uh sort of byronic sort of erotica novels that he wrote um in the early uh, mid 70s yeah like a feast unknown and right. image of the beast right a, uh, image of the beast so there was a dark female figure in there um you had made a point in i think your um Black Gate interview that that farmer was very versed in sort of the mythic, and so yes. I found that here you're almost seeing the inside of a pantheon, and you so you see all the stuff that you see in the sort of like the dark side of Greek myth that you know we don't really see as kids. So you have cannibalism, right? They eat one of the brothers after he's been dis- discovered dead, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, incest is pretty much implied. Vala is was formerly Jadowin's lover at, at, at a certain point. Right. Yeah. It uh, didn't seem, it didn't seem implied to me. It's right. <laughs> yeah. It was very much on the, uh, I should say, uh, not, in, uh, yeah. And actually sleep with the, one of the other brothers too. So it's, it's not, uh, explicitly depicted, but it's, it's there. Yes. Um, there's incest, there's cannibalism. There's cannibalism. There's people's heads being sliced in half by beamers. Oh yeah. Um, so it's, it, there are some very gory <laughs> moments. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's the, it's, it's being inside of the pantheon. Um, but there, it lacks the humor. And as you say, it doesn't have a, you see all these sort of like storm gods, but you don't have a trickster god in the Kikaha figure. Yeah, so that's that just seems to be, as you say, what, one thing that is missing to sort of balance out sort of the, the theme and the tones in the book. Uh, I was just going to say, go though, the book is interesting when you bring up the mythic aspect of it, uh, in that uh, this was in this one, he, he in between Maker of Universes and, and when he wrote Gates of Creation, uh, he went back and revisited William Blake and reread William Blake's writings and, and, and so got a, a broader idea of, 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 uh, his, of his works. And he actually, all the, the names of the characters of the Lords are actually characters straight out of William Blake's works. And, uh, uh, so he, I think he had borrowed, I'm trying to think if he had borrowed some in maker of universes, but he still like, he, what, what ended up happening was he, he, created all these relationships between the Lords, but they don't actually match up with William Blake's relationships, uh, like the, the, you know, the family relationships. And later he wrote a very interesting book in the series called uh, Red Orc's Rage, 
which is a sort of Philip K. Dick take on the world of tears because it takes place in our real world. Farmer is a character in it. Uh, and uh, there's a, there's a uh, psychiatrist who's basically created something called Tearsian therapy, where he uses the world of tears series to treat troubled adolescents. In this, the, the troubled adolescents, Jim Grimson, the main character of that book, gets drawn into the world of tears. And you, don't, you can't tell whether it's in his imagination or if he's really pulled into the world of tears. But in that book, what Farmer did was he was able to kind of retcon uh, because he had this sort of parallel version of the world of tears in it. Phil was saying that Phil Farmer was saying that he and Blake were both receiving visions of the same world and that it was real, but they both got like sort of distorted versions of it. And so he used that to explain why the names of the characters and the relationships of the characters, uh, why they were the same in Blake, but the relationships were different because they were both getting filtered versions of, uh, of this kind of mm-hmm. mystical transmission. Yeah. So that that's farmer for <laughs> and you. I've noticed uh, a, a tendency with farmer to um, play with metafiction and to sort of both directly insert himself into the stories and also to sort of maybe have sort of semi autobiographical elements. I would say that maybe Gates of Creation. Uh, I mean, sorry, not Gates of Creation. The previous book at the beginning, Wolf's whole life. Life, you know, he's a middle aged character, very unsatisfied with his life. Might sort of maybe reflect where farmer was at at that moment. He hadn't broken through as a professional writer yet when he was working on that book. Um, so I'm wondering um, how you feel about the sort of metafiction. Does it draw you in? Does it pop you out of the book? You know, how does that work for you, Chris and, and Jeff? It, I mean, if, if you're reading farmer, I mean, you better well <laughs> like metafiction because he uses it all the time. And he, he even uses it when you're not, when you don't realize it, because he is the, the, the king or the emperor of the Easter egg. Um, he slips things in there that, that, uh, people are still like Phil's hardcore readers are still figuring, you know, f- coming across things in there. It's like, Oh, I didn't realize that was in there, you know? And, uh, and we all have discussions about it. I'm kind of in with a big, uh, like a group of hardcore farmer fans that we discuss farmers works. Uh, so yeah. So he, uh, I, like I mentioned before, he wrote fictional biographies of doc Savage and Tarzan treating them as if they were real life characters. He also went through a, a phase in his career, his fictional author phase, where he wrote books uh, and stories that were uh, as if by authors, uh, characters who were authors in fiction. So for instance, uh, Kurt Vonnegut had the character Kilgore Trout uh, in his, in uh, God bless you, Mr. Rosewater and various other works. And Farmer got permission from Vonnegut to write a novel as by Kilgore Trout that was actually published under the name Kilgore Trout. And when the book came out, it created kind of a sensation because nobody knew who wrote it. They kept it a secret. Uh, and people started saying it was Vonnegut's best work. <laughs> that started ticking off, ticking off Vonnegut. Uh, and Vonnegut and Farmer kind of got into a feud after that. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, eventually it came out that Phil had written it. So, and so, yeah, so he's very much tied up in metafiction. Also, uh, another metafictional aspect of the World of Tears series is that uh, he drew it into what, what, what Phil called the, the Wold Newton family. So the Wold Newton family was this interrelated group of literary characters, mainly heroes and villains from, from, from literature, a lot of them pulp-based, that he, he uh, 
established in his biography, Tarzan Alive. So you have like, you know, the Scarlet Pimpernel and, you know, uh, the, you know, the shadow and G8 and the spider and, and all these characters being, being interrelated or even characters from Pride and Prejudice, you know, by Jane Austen and things like that. And, uh, so what he did was he slipped Paul Janice Finnegan, who is, um, who is uh, Kikaha, into the Wold Newton family in the family tree. Uh, so so in, in one of the later books in this World of Tears series, he, he, he relates uh, Kikaha's history and he finds out, finds out, you find out that basically he's related <laughs> to Phileas Fogg. Now, uh, one thing else I had noticed, Chris, was that uh, oftentimes um, the farmer characters, protagonists are outsiders or they have been cast out of a social group. And I was wondering if that reflects Farmer's relationship with sort of maybe science fiction uh, fandom and authordom. Again, he was not part of the sort of the New York circle of science fiction writers. He was very much living in the Midwest or at a certain point in his career, Los Angeles. He wasn't part of this constant, you know, uh, coffee club, if you will, coffee clatch. I'm not sure what aspect of Phil's life that might actually um, represent because I'm thinking back because I know his biography a little bit better. I'm thinking back to um, after after World War II, he fell in with a group of Bohemians, uh, basically who uh, uh, who were uh, people who uh, trying to think of the program where the uh, the military people who'd served uh, the got GI Bill the GI Bill that's the, that's yeah. the word people yeah. on the GI Bill and so he he fell in with this kind of group of Bohemians and kind of outcasts and and stuff and they were reading like a lot of the banned books at the time like. Uh, um, Henry Miller and, th- and things like that. And I think that that period had a big influence on him because it also, uh, you know, he he did not believe in censorship at all and, and wrote some very explicit material, like we were talking Image of the Beast and, and A Feast Unknown, which was a, a kind of a, a very, very adult take on Doc Savage and Tarzan. And, uh, and so I, I think that maybe being in that kind of outcast counterculture that might have something to do with that theme in his writings but that's just a guess (laughs) now kind of segueing this over to the gaming side a little bit i know that one of the questions we've been asking recently that have been that it's been kind of getting um a bit of attention with our fans is the question of what system would you use if you wanted to run this particular novel in a gaming scenario. So I know that you are mostly at this point, probably familiar with Pathfinder. So I'm curious if you were going to try to run or play in the gates of creation, how successful at that do you think Pathfinder would be, or would you prefer to use a different system for emulation of this particular story? I, I think you could definitely do it with Pathfinder. I mean, you've got, you've got the gates, you've got the booby traps. Um, I don't see any, any reason why you why you couldn't? Um, there's a there's an interesting article um, that I dug up. Uh, I had read this a few years ago, and I remembered it when uh, I got asked to be on this podcast uh, uh, by Ed Greenwood. That was published in Dragon Magazine number 37 back in May 1980, and it's uh, it's called "In One Small Step: The Theory and Use of Gates." And in it, uh, he he. Uh, basically traces the use of gates uh, mainly in Michael Moorcock's works and Philip Zay Farmer's works. Um, and so he actually runs down how you could use it um, and gives some suggestions of how to use it in AD&D. 
So that's an interesting article to, to look up. Uh, Very if you're cool. In, interested in, in running it. And I know that Tom Moldvay also wrote a game called The Lords of Creation, which was basically an un um, an, an unauthorized World of Tears role playing game. Have either of you had any experience with this game? I have not. I've heard of, I've heard, I've heard of it, but I have not encountered it. Yeah, How so. about you, Hoy? No, I have not. I know there's a French role playing game, but I've never seen it called Foan. Uh, okay. But I have never seen any. I've seen a couple pieces of art from it, and that's about it. Okay. Um, yeah. The, the, I, I pronounce it phone, Thawan. I'm phone, not sure how, how you pronounce it. Yeah. I, I never heard Phil say the word, but um, it it uh, it was very popular back in the day uh, in, in France. Um, in fact, I ran into a I ran into a friend of the creator of it when I was at Gen Con a few years back, and I was going to try to track him down and get an interview with him. But I never, I never did. But uh, it's quite an interesting game. I read a little bit of French, and I, w- I would love to be able to play that. I wish they put an English version of that game out someday. Sure. Right, right. So, Hoy, what, what system would you want to use for this? Hmm, it's a good question. I mean, I think any of the classic D and D systems generally would work, but there's not a distinct sense of um, the D and D classes, at least in this particular book. Right? Yeah. You know, they're probably all just fighters, right? Um, so. In that case, and also they are, even though they are, you know, superhuman in a sense, they're not depicted as being much more than like twice as strong as humans. It's more that they have a lot of experience and they're, they're very cunning, the lords. Yeah. Um, so you could equally well scale it on something that's a little bit more human scaled, like the basic role playing slash RuneQuest system or GURPS mm-hmm. yeah, and, yeah. and do that. Um, it's more about their ingenuity, their viciousness in this particular case um, than, you know, them being, you know, 20th level fighters. Um, totally. such. But if you wanted to play with it thematically, though, I think you could use the sort of the Beck V progression of mm-hmm. D&D, you know, basic expert companion yeah, yeah. all the way on, all up, up to Immortals, yeah. Right. Um, yeah, interesting. So, so how about you, Yeah, Jeff? I feel like I would want to use a system that maybe wasn't class-based for something like this. I think something like Traveler could be really fun to mm-hmm. run something like this. You also mentioned GURPS. I think that could be successful. I also feel like for some of the sections of the book, it doesn't need to be a role-playing game. I think some of the sections of the book could be straight-up video game because uh, <laughs> a lot of the middle of the book, you know, when they're traveling from world to world trying to get to the next set of gates, a lot of it felt very video gamey. You know, they're going through, they're fighting monsters, they come up to a trap, they're trying to find some way to kind of get up to that gate and get through that gate that a lot of it... Um, and it also didn't seem like there's a lot in the middle that really required much role playing necessarily. It was mostly dealing with, with traps and puzzles and monsters. Right. Well, I can see it as being an MMO. There's a, like you could have your little uh, trash talk in the sidebar there. You're trash talking the other players because the gods are always trash talking <laughs> each other. Sure. <laughs> right. So um, looking at this as as D and D though, I'm curious how how when I was reading this, it felt like. It felt like an evil campaign. You know, people talk about how, how can you have a game where a bunch of evil characters are playing together? And this felt like this is potentially, although we know that Jadowin's not evil, the rest of them are pretty much evil. So I guess, I guess Luva's not really. But, um, for, but for the most part, it is an evil set of characters who are working together for a common goal. What did you guys think of this as a potential setup for an evil campaign? Yeah, I think, uh, right, just the having the common goal keep them together long enough for them to self-destruct. <laughs> Um, is a good hook. So, so I can see that. I can see that. Okay, you just want to survive. If you won't survive, if if you leave people behind, right? But as soon as um, expedient, 
you know, shiv them. Maybe you get some story points in there. Maybe it's a fate or something like that. You get some story point for betraying one of your brothers and sisters at the appropriate time or the most inappropriate time. Totally. And it's the, and it's the kind of scenario where I can see people who wouldn't normally want to work with other people are going to have to work with other people just because they want to survive. And but, but a lot of them are trying to position so that they're the ones who are going to be on the top in the end too. So that I could also make for some fun PVP stuff. How about you, Chris? Yeah, no, I mean, like I said, that the 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 real core of this book is the backstabbing between between the characters. So I can I can totally see that being an, an evil campaign. I mean, this might be like fate. I don't know. I mean, I don't know fate well enough, but those kind of story games that might have that that element in there. You know, you can award certain kinds of you know narrative bonuses for for the appropriate role play. So, Chris, what is Robert Wolf slash Jadwin's alignment? <laughs> Well, it, <laughs> I mean, it 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 probably changed from what he was before to then then he sure. then he went to Earth, lived his life on Earth, and then came back and rediscovered who he was. And I think that there is a mm-hmm. redemption of the character there because he, like the other lords, uh, had basically taken over this pocket universe called the World of Tears, which is stacked like the tower has different levels, like the Tower of Babylon, uh, and on it he he created different cultures and he basically lorded literally lorded over the inhabitants there uh and and treated himself like a god you know and mm-hmm. and uh you know would come down and and you know mate with them and you know uh just not 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 a really nice setup there uh as far as far as that goes um and, and so but when he when he you know went and lived his life and on earth he gained you know and then came came back to the world of tears he gained you know empathy uh and so he 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 no longer so a lot of they they the lords also engaged in biological experiments so they would capture people like he would capture people from earth in fact uh the 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 woman who ends up you know becoming becoming his his mate or his wife uh uh was actually a character. Was actually a real life historical character from, uh, you know, from uh, I, I think from the Iliad. Just without leopard hair. Yeah, and so what he did was he captured <laughs> her and he he basically took her brain out and stuck it in another body, you know, and and uh, and turned her into this you know this kind of strange strange creature and uh, and so he did did all sorts of experiments like that, very unethical uh, exp- experiments and things. So. He, you know, he must have been some kind of, I would say, evil alignment originally. Uh, but, but, but now yeah. I would say he's he's. Uh, it's easier to probably to say what what Kikaha is. He's certainly chaotic good, but, <laughs> but, uh, but I would say maybe maybe he. I, uh, yeah, I'm not sure if he's lawful good. I don't I don't know. You know, he seems to have gotten a, a, his moral backbone back. Right. He still has some very pragmatic, uh, not cruel, but very pragmatic elements. Like, you know, True. he's not afraid to threaten, threaten his brothers. He'll eat the one who the brother is already dead because he knows he needs to survive. Um, you know, when they make the pact with the, um, you know, at first they're defending one tribe, but then as soon as that battle's over, they make the pact with the aerial tribe because they need, they know they need to go with them in order to get to this gate. So he's very pragmatic. So I, I wonder if he's sort of, neutral or good but sort of drifting towards back yeah. towards neutral in this book that would make sense you know and then you know he's 
Um, yeah, especially because near the end, there's a moment where where Vala is dying, and he's just like, "Yeah, let her die. She deserves she deserves to die." But then Chryseis is like, "Well, honey, actually, maybe we should uh, put her out of her misery." So there, there definitely is like there there are some external components that are kind of keeping him from slipping back to his old yeah, ways and, sometimes. And, yep. and, and I was just going to say, far, farmers' characters uh, are generally speaking it, one of the things they are very pragmatic. One of the things that Farmer brought to science fiction was he brought a, a realistic edge to it. Uh, and you'll see that throughout the, the World of Tears series. So that that's, I think, what you're picking up on there. But go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, very much that they have a survival instinct. And I think that he's able to turn it once they're out of that particular danger, they can sort of bring back whatever sort of their their ideals are. You know, so at the, at the very end, he, he, he cries tears for the children that they were and that they should have been, you know, a Jadowin. Right. But it's not until that very moment that he sort of is able to sort of release that that energy, that regret, you know, um, mm-hmm. before then, he's just like, OK, I've got, I've got to do this. Whatever it is takes to get to Crusades, you know, if I have to threaten my brothers for being, you know, and sisters for being because I know that they're going to backstab me if I have to threaten them. But leaving them behind or starving, that's what I'm going to do. But when he's finally able to just get to where he needs to be, he can sort of release and become the person he wants to be, if not the person that he always is. One thing I really dug about this story is in the end, when Robert Wolf is planning to build this space balloon up to the planet, um, but then kind of uh, turn, uh, flips the script real quick and then instead dumps this gate into the ocean so that his father's world is filling up with water, like all of the water from this water world. It kind of reminded me of um, players versus the dm's plans (laughs) like you might go into a session or write an adventure or even be running a published module thinking the players are going to do a certain thing and then they come up with an idea that is absolutely not covered anywhere (laughs) and and i don't know i kind of felt like i was watching somebody run a game and who is just saying yes to everything and because of that really insanely fun and cool things happen Oh, I was just going to totally agree with you. I mean, that is such a great, a great scene there and so unexpected in it. But it's, it's at the same time, such <laughs> a logical conclusion of what you could do with these gates. Sure. Yeah. And I didn't see it coming at all. It, 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 I don't know it's something if, if I would have come up with in, in game or not, probably not. But it was it was very compelling. So this book, this this whole series is very is specifically cited by Gary Gygax as an inspiration on D&D and something that he encouraged people to read for ideas as well. So I'm curious, Chris, why do you feel like this particular series of farmers was what um, Gygax called out? I think uh, because it is, I've always viewed it, and I, I don't know if, I've never really heard anyone else say this, but like I've always viewed it as farmers' own updated version of Edgar Rice Burroughs in a way, because it has those adventurous characters. They are grittier and more pragmatic uh, and the book has a darker edge and, and more violence than Edgar Rice Burroughs' book, but uh, but at the same time it ha- captures that same uh, magic because you have this character who's transported to a new world, you know, like he's he's in his humdrum life uh, on on Earth, and then you know it literally opens a closet door, you know, and and goes through a gate in into a, into another world, uh, a very exciting world, you know. So I think that it's just that magic that that kind of uh Barosian archetype that, that is the setup for the series um and then on top of it it just 
I mean, really, the, it's the gates, <laughs> you know, the gates <laughs> and the booby traps um, yeah. that are, that are, you know, such a, an interesting concept that, that could be used in a game. What do you think, Hoy? Uh, two things. I think one to bring it around to the point that you had just made. This almost has that interrelationship of the, as you say, the GM to the player. So very much the Lords, you know, Urizen is like that sadistic DM, right? Who's creating these like evil booby traps, as you say, these gates and these booby traps. You don't know where these gates are going to go. This could lend you up in the bottom of the ocean or, you know, 30,000 feet in the air or whatever with the gates. Um, you know, the traps are all, you know, you never know. Everything's presumed to be trapped or poisoned. Um, so there's that relationship again of like something you're creating an adversarial universe. It's not just a, a naturalistic universe. Every single one of these planets is literally trying to kill them that they travel to, right? It's a yeah. giant trap of some sort. Um, the other thing I thought was kind of funny was that all the creatures are just so literally look like they were rolled on a random monster table. Okay. <laughs> the feet are like this. It's got suckers. Okay. <laughs> Jackrabbit ears, uh, you know, red tail, <laughs> D12. It's green tail. No, it's got a red tail. You know, so exactly. Very it's like, like James Raggi's random esoteric creature exactly generator like was used for every <laughs> single <laughs> encounter. Right. Exactly like that. But there's a sense that, that is a, there's an element of humor in there. So, you know, these things are, it's a, uh, you know, it's an eagle, but it's got a, a monkey face, but it's still got an eagle beak and saber tooth fangs, you know, something ridiculous yeah, like that. And, 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 and an elephant trunk. An elephant trunk. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, no, I know. I love thought that. this might be interesting just to read. Uh, in, in Red Orc's Rage, uh, Phil actually makes clear that he was very aware of the influence of the series on D&D. And there's actually a little paragraph in here. He says, the World of Tears series was clearly an anticipation of the Dungeons and Dragons games, which were so popular among youths. Its gates, the traps set by the lords in the gates, and the ingenuity necessary to get through the gates, and the dangerous worlds mm-hmm. in which a wrong decision would lead a character prefigured the D&D games. Uh, Jim was surprised yes. that the series had not been adapted to such a game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. I like that a lot. And I think another element that I imagine appealed to Gary Gygax a great deal is I know a focus of earlier iterations of D&D were much more focused on um, what's what I'm looking for, like the conserving of resources and things like that, where, where maybe the way a lot of people play D&D now, they don't really worry about how many arrows you have or how much how many rations you have. Um, but there's a lot, there's a big focus on his, the, the power packs for his beamer. And there are there are big sequences where they're out of food and they're starving and they're desperate to find anything that they can to eat. And I think in looking at the way that Gary Gygax wrote AD&D, that was always an aspect of the game that really mattered to him. He really wanted to make sure that we were keeping track of that stuff because he wanted the characters to deal with the drama of, oh man, we're out of arrows or we are deep in this dungeon and there's nothing to eat do we go deeper or do we turn back around and go back to town and restock our food supplies? The resource management game you were saying. Yeah. Thank you. That's what, that, that's the phrase I was looking for. Right. The resource management. Yes. And, and keeping good time records. Although it's funny. Um, we had mentioned in the last book uh, at one point, they're like climbing up the, the world of tears, like, and six months later, they got to the next level. Right. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> and, and there's a passage in here. They're like 360 moons later. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and and uh, they went through the, all the gates again and had many, many more adventures that would fill many more books. But we won't talk about them here. And 360 moons later. Right. And so <laughs> that is true. Yeah. While they're while they're building this balloon right, that they're right. not actually going to use. Right. Right. So so 
uh, he follows it until it becomes not interesting. And that's a, the sense I always get with Farmer is that he will go into great detail until something becomes not interesting and then it's on to the next thing. You know? That's, yeah. <laughs> But I think that's even true in like in, in role playing games and in mm-hmm. Dungeons and Dragons, sure. you know, there's there's the stuff that happens in between the sessions. Right. You know, I know some people play where every session picks up where the last session left off, but sometimes, you know, an adventure ends and then you can as a group have a discussion about like, okay, well, what's happening during this six month period? Oh, you want to build a balloon that's gonna to go to the to, to the outer space? All right, we can we can figure out what that's like. Right. <laughs> Actually, Chris, let me ask you, since neither Jeff nor I are regular players of Pathfinder, you know, we're more DCC and and sort of older iterations of DD. How much does Although I will say I do have a, a quite a bit of experience playing Pathfinder. That that used to be one of the systems okay. I played a lot. Okay. How much does Pathfinder privilege all this kind of stuff that we've just been talking about, as opposed to getting right into the heroics? Yeah, well, see, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not as familiar with with the the older iterations sure. of D and D, so I, it's hard for me to to really compare. But uh, uh, and it really depends on on I think a little bit on the GM sure. too. Uh, on it like does. when I was yeah. in like James Jacobs's game and stuff like that, he he played that pretty loose, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. So, uh, which I mean, and, it, and it, the rules are in there in Pathfinder to talk about exhaustion and starvation and drowning and things like like the, the, all the mechanics for those things exist. But I would say the culture of third edition D and D plus third, fourth, and fifth edition D and D and Pathfinder is less about counting your arrows and keeping tracks of keeping track of your rations unless there's a specific situation in which it matters. You know, if you if you're on an adventure that's that's going to be setting out into the desert and a big point of the setting is that there's no food out there, then perhaps your GM will have you keeping track of that stuff. But I think most most of the time these days the kind of resource management side of the game has been hand-waved because it turns into just a lot of accounting that gets in the way of the enjoyment for a lot of players. Yep, I would agree with that. Yeah, that's yeah, that's yep. my experience with it. One thing. Um, oh, and actually, we're 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 starting to get close out. We're we're, we're running out of time. Um, but one last thing I would like to throw out there is I love the fact that while these lords were running around the water island, Urizan is their is their god, and here are these other here are these other like demigods who are running around as well, and it makes me wonder like what are the gods in D anD D. And perhaps the gods are also in D&D just mortals from another plane who have access to magics or technology or something and strip them of that. And they are just as powerless as you. That could be a really fun thing to incorporate into your games. Do you guys have any kind of last burning thoughts you wanted to throw uh, out there before we wrap this I up? I will say that I think that one of the reasons that this that the World of Tears series resonates on that mythic level is that Phil actually got this idea from a series of fever dreams that he had when he was younger, when he, I think uh, he was in, he's still a teenager and he had this dream Mm. of this Babylon shaped world, basically Babylon tower, Babylon shaped world. And he uh, saw the character of Kikaha, which I think is why that character resonates so well. So I think that because it, was pulled right out of his subconscious. I think that's why this series resonates. And it is by the hardcore farmer fans, it is much more highly rated than his 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 more famous work, which is Riverworld. Uh the 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 real farmer fans really tend to go toward the world of tears. Mm-hmm. So it has a, a it does have that mythic resonance. 
I think that's why. Actually, you jumped on something something very interesting there, Chris. I, I've I felt like it was very much, and since we talked about psychology earlier, that the at least these books are very sort of id, id driven in a way that, um, mm. and they're not they're definitely not uh, I guess left brain is the very logical side. This this is they're definitely more right right brain id driven than um, you would give credit for for something that's nominally science fantasy. And I'm wondering if there's a way to bring that more into our gaming too, make the gaming a little bit more sort of. Um, you know, gamers tend to be very logical, sort of, you know, right brain, uh, left brain types, right? So can we bring, can we make our gaming a little bit more wild and a little bit more, you know, <laughs> uh, I don't know, just something to think about. Yeah, I like that. I think a lot of that has to depend on the conversation that you're having with your players, either during or prior to the game starting. Sure. Um, I think that if you're going to try to make that happen just as a GM, then you might end up with players who don't quite understand what you're trying to do and you might get some pushback. But I think if the the entire table agrees, like this would be a fun way to play this and that we're not just going to worry about character builds and getting lots of loot, that we're going to kind of try to play out this kind of more id-driven, um, uh, kind of baser instinct kind of campaign, then yeah, that sounds like that'd be a lot of fun. Right. I wonder if there are systems that might privilege that better, such as Fate or, again, one of the more story game systems than Pathfinder or D&D. But, again, I'm not as familiar with the story game side. Yeah, I think I think if you really want to pursue that, unless you've got a group of players who are really invested in that kind of gaming, that you need to have a system that rewards that kind of, that kind of play, which I think usually you need to step away from level-based game systems to, to find systems that reward that kind of play. But anyways, yeah, cool. And Hoy, do you have any last thoughts? Uh, no, I think that I, I really like this, um, what you brought up. Uh, and I think that this may, uh, Chris, and that, that may have been why I never actually got to the River World Series. I mean, the River World Series seemed almost a little bit sort of too neatly organized. And this one is just like big ideas, just crazy, wild, just getting dumped in your lap. And uh, I mean, I'll eventually get to the River World Series, but this is this was mm-hmm. uh, my first farmer, as I recall, other than possibly, I did actually read Venus on the Half Shell, not knowing it was a farmer book when I was a kid. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then I did read, I did read um, also, uh, you know, because it was on the, it was on the science fiction bookshelves. So you could get away with reading, although you shouldn't uh, as a kid, um, the, the sort of uh, farmer erotica uh, novels because like, oh, it's farmer, it's science fiction. So, so I can just go in the library and pull those off the shelves. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Oops. Yep. Uh, but those are, those are totally, those are totally it. So that's definitely very interesting yep. to sort of put that together. I mean, and he's such a very, I mean, he's such a clearly intelligent, learned person, but that he privileges that is really interesting to me. Yeah. He was a Renaissance guy, but you know, he did, he very much, incorporated psychology into his works great well guys this is going to be where we're going to wrap this up chris thank you so much for joining us and sharing all of your experience and insight thank you so much for having me on it was a it was an honor uh we'd love to have you back at some point to talk more about farmer we're definitely going to be hitting uh what the river world and a lot of his short stories right jeff yeah we're going to be going through basically almost all the books that chris brought up today uh okay. cool. Yeah, so our next two books will be uh, episode 33 is going to be Paul Anderson's The High Crusade. Episode 34 will be Roger Zelazny's Nine Princes in Amber. Oh, uh, great. <laughs> so there we're going to start talking about those as well. So, Hoy, can you let us know how our folks can reach us? Sure. Uh, our website is appendixnbookclub.com. You can email us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter and Facebook. And if you can review us on iTunes, it really helps people find us. 
So uh, that's that. Thank you very much. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed.